This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Oh, what a holy way to start the spookiest month of the year. It's episode 387 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, wishing you a happy October, a happy early Halloween. And by the way, I know what you're streaming because Netflix is kind of releasing that information now and one of the biggest shows on there still Midnight Mass that debuted this past weekend and I thought I would get the perspective from one of the members of the cast so I have Crystal Ballant joining me to talk about playing Dolly on Midnight Mass and boy does she have some interesting insight into this show and something else that might be coming maybe possibly hmm I've also got my spoiler filled review of the series premiere of La Brea on NBC. That one's going to be spoiler-filled, excuse me. Spoiler-free is going to be my review of The Addams Family 2, the sequel from MGM and United Artists. That one is out in theaters now, and you can get my review completely free of spoilers, you know, in case you need a few tips going in. You know there's going to be nerd news. You know there's going to be comics. Even more reviews coming, but let's get right to it. Crystal Balint is here to talk about Midnight Mass from Netflix. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, it's Larissa Tronco from Netflix's The Order, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So if you pay attention to social media at all, I know what you're watching. It's Midnight Mass because it's one of the top 10 shows on Netflix. It's taken everything by storm. Everybody's already upset that it's only a limited series, 
But I got to tell you, one of the people that I was really keeping an eye on when I was watching it was Dolly, because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with her. So how can I not talk to the wonderful Crystal Belint? Crystal, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Crystal, like I said, you go on social media right now. I mean, it's still trending. Everybody's still talking about the series. Did you all kind of know when you were on the set that you were making something special here? Well, I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily looked at it in the terms of how social media was going to perceive it, but we knew we were a part of something really unique. The show hit a spot for all of us. I think as a cast, and you've probably seen some of the banter back and forth between us, there's a lot of love in this cast. And we're like family now. You know, we all came together during this really unique time in the world. And we made this thing that was deeply personal to Mike and, and became really personal for all of us. So, I mean, we felt it was going to be, we felt that we were making something special, but we had no idea how much it was necessarily going to affect everyone else. And we're just grateful that it is. It definitely is. And actually, I feel like you got a unique perspective too, because for anybody that doesn't know your background, you kind of you, you grew up in a very small town yourself, much like Crockett is, maybe in a different sense, but it's it's also a very small town. So how much did that experience kind of, did you take with you into this role? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, like you said, I grew up in a small town that was like less than 5,000 people for most of my upbringing, which is bigger than Crockett, obviously, but those elements are still at play. It doesn't matter what kind of small town, how, you know, a small town is a small town and there's always, there's the Bev Keens and there's, you know, the people who, you know, there are those, those characters that we've brought to life in the show. I also spend part of my time um, on a small island just off the coast of BC with they're also sort of smattered with a bunch of small communities of people. So I is as an adult too, I have experienced living in small communities and for sure it, it influenced how I behaved as Dolly and how I just sort of interacted with characters. There's just a certain kind of, there's an essence to people who grow up and live in those types of communities, both good things and bad things. So yeah, it was hard not to bring it into it. The, th the fact that you can still find a community that small in 2021 is good for you. I don't know how you pulled that off, Crystal, but well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so for anybody that's been watching the series or anybody that's just diving in, Dolly's actually got a very important standing in the community. So do you feel like that's stressful for her or does she really kind of embrace it, you feel like? You know, I think Dolly started off as someone who enjoyed it. I mean, her husband is the mayor. And, you know, I think when you're in a small community like that and you have any kind of prominence, you know, there's some prestige to it to a some extent although you are still just a community member i think she has quite a large standing in the church she's quite she's quite an active member of her church but because of what happens to the scarborough family as it pertains to lisa and the accident and the things that have happened to their family it changes dolly it changes how she perceives herself how she perceives herself in the community uh, i think it's made her smaller and so it, I don't think she revels in the prominence in the same way that, say, Wade does. I think she, it, it really took the wind out of her sails. And so when we meet Dolly in the show, she's sort of at a low point, which is why the changes that happen in Crockett really affect her in a significant way. Yeah, no doubt about that. I want to play off that a little bit because you talked about her husband being the mayor of the island. He does seem like at times, though, he has blinders on a little bit without spoiling anything. Do you feel like she sees that or is she kind of like stand by your man right in line with him, you think? I think there's some of that for sure. I think Dolly is a dutiful wife. I believe she, you know, cares deeply for her husband and she, you know, respects Wade and respects the position that he has both as a mayor and also as a father and a partner. But I also think that 
I don't know if necessarily she's blinded also in a lot of the events that take place because they affect her so personally. They so some of a lot of the events that take place directly affect her family. And so it's difficult to it's difficult not to have, you know, come into it with a bit of tunnel vision because you want to believe. And so I think she really does. She really goes in kind of whole hog and and Wade brings her along with him. But but I think she's on board pretty early on. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Speaking of believing, I mean, religion, obviously a, a big part and focus of the show, just given the title alone. How interesting was it for you, though? that you all have characters like the Hassan family or even a character like Dr. Gunning and, and, and her and the way she lives her life and things like that to kind of highlight the different aspects of the religious tensions that happen throughout a community like this. Well, I mean, I think that's just a testament to the brilliant writing that Mike, you know, put into the show. You know, as you probably lots of people have read that he's spent so much of his life working on this project, so much of his professional career. So he really created a, a fascinating range of characters to challenge the faith of across the board and challenge people's beliefs. Sarah Gunning is a perfect example of she's someone who she's not really, she's not a villain and she's not a, she's not a savior. She's someone who's just, she's sort of, there to help us sort of stay grounded. Hassan is a fantastic character because he represents sort of the outside world to a large extent of like what, you know, how he would perceive other people might perceive the island. So I think that they're integral to the story. And I think that they're, again, just a testament to the brilliant writing. And I, uh, I've loved having those personalities to play off of and the actors playing them were just like fantastic. They just did such tr tremendous work. Absolutely. We're talking to Crystal Boleyn, who of course plays Dolly on Midnight Mass, which you can see right now streaming on Netflix, all seven episodes. Now, Crystal, you talked about Lisa a little bit, her daughter going through a lot when we first mm -hmm. meet her. We get to learn about that backstory really quickly. So talk about their relationship a bit, hers and Dolly's, and shooting that pivotal moment in episode two. I'm sure you know exactly which one I'm talking about. The woman, the young woman who plays Lisa, Anara Simon, she's just tremendous. And I've, she, right away, I was like, okay, this is someone I can work with. And I think the relationship that sort of we have is, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Dolly is pretty downtrodden when we meet her. She's so heavily affected by what's happened to Lisa and what's happened to their family. I mean, you don't really get to learn too much about this, but as a backstory and my discussions with Mike, you know, they've, they've invested heavily into making sure that Lisa has what she needs to be a functional person after what happens to her. So, you know, you could imagine refitting their whole house and putting ramps in and getting the right things for her and seeing doctors and seeing specialists. So as anyone who's ever been through any kind of trauma like that, that affects the entire family, it's, it just takes a toll and you do your best to stay positive, but it's really difficult. So when that pivotal change happens in episode two, I mean, that moment, I had spent a fair bit of time sort of just like investing in how weighted down Dolly was. And getting to release that in episode two was, that was one of my favorite scenes to film because it just was, for both of us, I think, like it was just such a highlight being able to kind of like it's the first time we see Dolly actually breathe a little deeper and she stands a little straighter after that. And, you know, it starts to feel like herself again. And so again, really fantastic writing, but it was just such a fun and, and really cathartic scene to shoot. You hit the nail right on the head and you were really good in that scene too. I thought it really stood out. So it absolutely Thank well you. done on your part. Thank for you. Sure. 
another great performance in this series, and I, I'm sure you'll agree. I'm an unapologetic Hamish Linkletter fan anyway. But, I mean, Father Paul's a character to me that the second you see him, he just stands right out when we introduce him. So let's go back a little bit, talk about Dolly's first impression of him, but also just how great was it working with Hamish on the show? Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, quickly, Do- Dolly, I think right away is there's something everyone feels this and you see it on, on screen is that there's something very different about him. The minute he comes in, you know, remember it's a sleepy little town with a Monsignor who's been there for what feels like forever, who can barely remember the words to his own homilies most days. And so, you know, you get into a rhythm with someone like that, and especially in a small community, you know, there's a very heavy reliance on habits and he was part of that habit. And then you get this new guy who is so refreshing and so different and so approachable and so lovely and right at the gate he leaves this like really terrific impression upon all of us so that for dolly is is one thing and then that for me crystal as an actor i mean i wasn't super familiar with hamish's work but when we got together with um the entire cast just before the lockdown actually to do an entire seven episode like script reading with the whole cast, which was a full day event and a lot of fun. Already back in March, watching him read those homilies and do those scenes. I mean, we were all getting goosebumps and that was before he'd had an additional five months with the material and then came and brought it to set. So, I mean, I, I remember coming home from that first cast read and saying to my partner, like, this is this person is gonna blow this show out of the water. I mean, like already we were weeping at the t- table read. I mean, we all had moments of that, but his scenes and his homilies and his delivery was already so dialed in at the table read that I just I couldn't wait. And then of course on set it was like it was like being it was like literally like going to church as an actor. <laughs> like oh my god, please don't stop talking. And on top of which, he's just such a lovely guy. He's a really tremendous guy and a lot of fun to be around and really funny. And I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot working with him. I would agree with all those things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you, we've talked about Mike Flanagan a lot. And just in true Mike Flanagan fashion, all hell breaks loose at some point in this series, and which is a lot of fun. But I've seen some other interviews with other cast members saying that, that they kind of didn't know what they were getting into when they signed up for the show, would you say that that was true of you as well? You're like, you thought it was going to be one thing. And then once you get into it, like, whoa, hold on, what, what, huh? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I got the, the you know, I'll try and make brief the story, but like when I got the audition, it was very like cloak and dagger. Like I got this audition and it was like, I think at the time it wasn't called midnight mass. It was called something else, like a working title. And the character description was like one sentence or something like that. Like it was very, very vague. And I've read for it. And then like, it was right before the holidays. So then a month later, you know, you get into Christmas and you kind of forget about things. And then then, like a month later, I get a call and saying, you booked this job. And I couldn't remember what it was. And then we got the scripts and I remember reading the scripts and going like, oh my God, this is like, this is like an enormous thing. And then as we started shooting it and watching the scale that they were bringing to things, I mean, everything from um, SFX to set design to even just like the shot lists were incredible. It was a feature film scale, you know, production. And then, like you said, when things sort of explode in those later episodes, being a part of that, that filming experience, I was like, oh, wow, this is on another level for sure. And I was not expecting that. 
So one thing that we can expect, and I know you probably can't talk a whole lot about this, is we know that you're going to be joining Mike again for the Midnight Club. Now, I know it's early. It's a project that's, you know, very in the early, early going. But how much can you talk about that and how nice will it be to actually, you know, kind of work with some of the same faces again? Yeah. So, yes, I am going to be in the Midnight Club and, and I I can talk a little bit about only because I know that it's out there in the in the in the Internet world <laughs> that it's out there to confirm. So, yeah, I'll be joining on that that show for a few episodes. And I was fortunate enough to get on that because Mike invited me back. And it, it's again, it's I mean, it's a different thing than Midnight Mass, obviously, because it's Christopher Pike adaptation. So anyone who knows Christopher Pike's work, which I am familiar with and was so excited to get invited to play with this. But it's again, really, the, the writing is tremendous. Mike was involved in all of that stuff. And the production is really terrific, terrific. The cast on this show is some familiar faces. So I did get to work with some familiar faces from Mass. And they're all really excellent. I think people are really going to be blown away by the performance in this show too. And, and yeah, it was just a treat to come back and work with Mike and Trevor and the whole team at Intrepid because they're like I said they're like family now so I'm just like chuffed to be able to be a part of it again and if you guys haven't joined the family yet you need to to Midnight Mass streaming right now on Netflix Crystal Belint thank you so much for joining me I appreciate it you're so welcome it was a pleasure to be here thanks for having me once again, I want to thank Crystal Belint for joining me to talk about Midnight Mass, now streaming on Netflix. Up next, going to give you my spoiler-free review of The Addams Family 2, the big sequel. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. October has finally arrived, and that means we could start our Halloween celebration, right? And who better to start it with than the Adams Family themselves? That's right, the Adams Family 2 in theaters now from MGM and United Artists. It's the sequel to the very popular first animated movie that came out not too long ago. And I thought I would give, since I got to see it a little bit early, and since the movie's only been out for a day, I'll give you my spoiler-free thoughts on what I think about this one. So I, I will have to mix in a couple of little plot points, though, just to talk about what's going on in the movie and give you a general idea. But it's really nothing that you haven't seen in trailers and things like that that we've shared at downandnerdypodcast.com. But basically, yeah, the, the gist of it is there's a couple things going on here, actually. First of all, you know that the Adams Family is going on a family road trip vacation, and the Adamses, whether you're... They're in their own mansion or elsewhere. You know, hijinks are going to ensue, and it certainly does that. But there's also another subplot here that is actually more interesting, believe it or not. Yeah, the road trip is fun, and it does play a role in the story. 
But the larger story is something else. And it has to do with Wednesday Adams, actually. So it's like what they're running from is is the best way I could possibly put it without spoiling anything. And while it was fun having the road trip and the reason for the road trip being that, you know, the kids just don't seem interested in wanting to be part of the family anymore, at least not Wednesday anyway. Wednesday's, you know, she's trying to like find her. She She's getting older, so she's trying to find her place in the world and find her place in the family. And she, she's just not sure that, you know, the, that the family and, and her are kind of clicking anymore. So, you know, of course, Gomez says, hey, let's hit the road and we'll bond again as a family. And that's how the whole thing kind of gets started. But it, that's not the big picture of the movie. And I think that one of the things that got lost a little bit is, yeah, all this stuff is fun. But I kind of found myself gravitating more towards that other aspect of the story. But here's the push and pull of movies that are targeted for children and movies that are targeted for adults. Because that's what this movie kind of tries to do. This movie, I feel like, tries to please both sides. Not that both stories can't appeal to kids and both stories can't appeal to adults. But it was almost like, here, let's give, let's make sure the kids have, you know, the fun and the, and the expose, explosions and the, you know, back and forth between Wednesday Pugsley and things like that and just the crazy stuff that Uncle Fester does. Let's have all those things. But then for mom and dad who are watching the movie with them, Let's have this a little bit deeper storyline that's going to be a part of it, too, and add a little something to it, especially when it's the Adams family, who's a family you've probably grown up loving at some point in your life, whether it was with the Raul Julia Angelica Houston, Christina Ricci movie, or it was the original Adams Family series, or maybe another animated series along the way, or the comic strips, whatever. You're a fan of the Adams family at some point, likely. So you care about these characters. In this other storyline will go a long way at kind of, you know, tugging at your heartstrings in that regard. So it, it feels like it's trying to have the best of both worlds. And I will say it actually juggles it pretty darn well. It, it kind of it kind of intertwines everything in a real in a way that really makes sense. This could have easily been cluttered and it wasn't, which I really, really love. And I, I do have to say, though. There's a there's a few little fan servicey moments in there in the dialogue between Gomez and Morticia where you you're throwing out a line in there because you have to sort of thing because it's the Adams family and you have to remind people that it's the Adams family. One of my favorite things about this movie though is there's a scene with Lurch and Lurch doesn't get enough love when it comes to any Adams family adaptations and we've had some great Lurch moments over the years. But this one really, really came. There's a moment in this movie that really, really is going to surprise you. And it was so hilarious, not just because of what happens, but where it happens and who it happens with and things like that. That that is one of the moments in this movie that definitely had me just howling, laughing for sure. But, I, you know, I really love the the attitude of Wednesday's character in the movie as well. And kind of her evolution throughout the movie, I thought is I think is really really good, I, and it just if you're a parent, you'll almost kind of understand too, where Gomez and Morticia to a lesser extent are coming from, with their concerns about their child and things like that. So it's all in all, I think this was a pretty good sequel. Was it as good as the first one? Yeah, probably not. 
because I feel like the first one kind of, while it didn't necessarily introduce the Adams family, it was maybe a little wackier than the second one was, but it's cool to see them go to all these historic locations like Grand Canyon and stuff like that. And what might happen if they went there? Cause you don't get to see the Adams family outside of the mansion a ton in other adaptations. So, but like, okay, well, what would happen if the Adamses actually went to this particular location? What could happen? And, and, you know, you, you see kind of what happens when they go to the Grand Canyon so it's and you just get to see so much of Wednesday in this movie. Wednesday really does shine throughout this movie, no doubt about it, in many, many moments throughout. So, I, yeah, definitely this is one that I think that you'll enjoy. I think you'll enjoy, if the kids are, are with you, I think that everybody's going to have a good time with The Addams Family too, which is now in theaters. And, yeah, this this is definitely, I think, worth the price of admission again not sure it's as strong as the first one but this as far as sequels go this one is pretty darn good and i think it'll have you laugh and you'll definitely have a good time if you love the first one you'll definitely like the second one there's no question about that it's going to do it for my spoiler free review of the adams family 2 up next we'll head back to the tv side and talk about la brea from nbc but this time with spoilers that's next on the down and nerdy podcast this is Dave Gastmalchin, creator of Count Crowley Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to travel down the sci-fi sinkhole. The first episode of La Brea, the sci-fi drama from NBC, dropped this past week, the very first episode. So I gave my spoiler-free review at downandnerdypodcast.com, but I thought it was important to jump back in and give one with spoilers for the premiere, of course, the second episode going to be coming up this week. And the reason I wanted to do this was because I, I thought it was important to put some context to some of the things that I was saying in my spoiler-free review that I couldn't really reveal. So spoilers are ahead for the La Brea pilot. If you haven't seen it already, just beware of that. And I, I don't want to go back through the whole thing of what it's about. You kind of know what it's about. You know, the giant sinkhole opens up near the La Brea tar pit. Some people fall in, some people don't. And then there's the whole, you know, what happened to them? Where did they go? What is this thing? And all this other stuff. So one of the things that kind of, well, there, there were a couple things that kind of drive me crazy about this show a little bit. First of all, it's one of the, the comparisons to Lost. And we've got to stop doing this. As fans, we've got to stop doing it. I get it. There's there's definitely a lost vibe here. There's a lot. The lost formula is kind of sort of being used here a little bit. But there's enough differences here, quite frankly, to not really compare this show to Lost. But I love that the writers knew this was coming. And they actually throw a joke in the premiere episode about Lost. And how they're kind of comparing the people that that are that have fallen into the into the sinkhole to the characters on Lost. Love that they were that kind of self-aware that that was coming. But and and again, I get it. But I think it's lazy to compare stuff like that to Lost all the time because it's not a direct. If anything, Manifest was way closer to Lost than Lost than than, than La Brea. So while I understand. That you're going to make that comparison. I, I just, in this particular instance, I don't think it's fair. And I think we really, really need to stop that. 
The other thing that, that kind of drives me nuts is that there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of characters that they're trying to make matter and they're trying to throw out at us, both in the hole and on the surface. There, There's something going on here where you have to keep up with a ton of different characters and they try to add depth to a lot of them. Obviously, a lot of this is going to focus on the Harris family. You know, you've got Eve, you've got Izzy, who is still on the surface. You've also got their son who was injured in this whole thing. And his name is Josh. And you've also got the dad who is kind of like the, you know, you know, mom and dad have gotten divorced thing. So now here you've got Gavin, who is the dad that hasn't been around and now wants to be around for his kids sort of thing. So th- there's your main focus for the show. But then you've got all these other characters like Dr. Dr. Samuel v- Velez, who is probably the most interesting character on the, in the actual in, in the hole. I don't know exactly what, what you're supposed to call it. So we'll just say they're in the hole because he's like the most together one. And if basically it's one of those things where if you lose this dude, you could be done. You could absolutely 100% be done. So make sure you keep that guy alive. I also like you how you've got Scott, who's adding the comic relief there, because this show needs like this stoner guy who's going to mess up and just come out with jokes, even when it's completely inappropriate to make jokes. He's the kind of guy you need. Sure, you're going to be frustrated by him at times, but he's the kind of guy you need on a show like this when there's so many things going on. But as far as characters, I'm keeping my eye on, though. Keeping my eye on Ty, who we find out is like a therapist. And not a very stable therapist, mind you. But there's just something about him. I feel like we're going to get a lot more as the story starts to to unravel here a little bit. So he's one of the characters that I'm keeping my eye on. And quite frankly, I'm keeping my eye on the creatures themselves, right? I mean, you've got the wolves that we've already seen. We've got the giant, like, albatross-type birds that we've seen as well that are really neat. So the, the, the big spoiler alert, saber-toothed tiger that we see there at the end. So we maybe we're feeling like there's some sort of a time travel aspect going on here to this show. So that, that that's an, uh, how much more are we going to see? Because then you're going to have to start throwing out comparisons to, like, shows like Terra Nova. And stuff like that, right? Ultimately, you'd almost have to do that. But honestly, this is a show that has its unique qualities. It's just trying to throw you in too many different directions at once. And then it falls into a couple of sci-fi tropes, like the whole, you know, second sight thing with Gavin's. Like, I can see them down there. And why can I see them? And I'm like, well, you know. And they, they find that neck. They find the wedding ring right at the end of the episode. And that's supposed to be his connection as to, yes, I'm telling the truth that I could see them, but wouldn't it be, wouldn't it have been more interesting? At least it would have been to me. If they just happened to stumble upon that somehow, I'm not saying how, but like, let's say they stumble upon it. Right. And that's how they make the revelation of, Oh, well, there must be something different going on here because we found this. So not only does that mean that they're still alive, But also, you know, how is it possible that this is here sort of thing? 
So I I think that that would have just been a little bit more interesting way to go about it. Also, the how the fact that we have like this whole like government conspiracy shadowy type thing going on. It's like, do we have to do this every time? Like seriously, every time we have to do this. One thing I did think was interesting though that I, that I thought was different when they're talking about search for survivors in the hole and they say that they're searching for them, but like they're really not. And I thought that that was interesting because it's like, so are you going to search for survivors? Nah, nobody could have survived that fall. We're kind of done with it. We're not really doing that. So now we're going to just focus on studying what this big rift is in the sky instead. And we're going to start sending drones and stuff down there. So I kind of thought it was interesting that they kind of have no interest in, in trying to find these people at all. You know, at least like with Manifest, that was completely different. With Lost, that was completely different. If you're going to make that comparison, right, it's not like they sort of just didn't want to look for them. I mean, right from the jump, it seems like they don't want to lurk for any survivors. So I thought that that was an interesting little nugget and maybe something that will come back a little bit later on to kind of, you know, round things out. And I'm not, when I say later on, I mean, maybe not even until the next season. Like, imagine they end up getting back and realize that nobody really wanted to look for them in the first place. And maybe that changes in the next episode. I'm not going to spoil the next episode for you. Maybe that changes in the next episode. You'll have to wait and see. But their their approach to what happens to these people is quite interesting and telling if I'm being honest so and and you know so those kind of those things kind of make me go really you know is that how we really want to do this so there, there's a lot of good things about La Brea I do think it's a very interesting concept I do love the fact that we're going to get some interesting creatures out of this as well it's not an annoying survivalist aspect type of show like it could be because you know I'm sure you feel like you've seen this kind of show before and to a certain degree you have but I'm not sure that it's to the to the degree that you think it is because they're adding these different elements to the show like the possible time travel element there as well and there's more advanced technology in this show than there would have been for similar shows that are just like this as well. So you got to factor that in too, even though, I mean, it's not working in the hole, but what happens if it does or what happens, you, you know, the whole, you reach the high point thing to get a signal, right? Maybe that happens at some point, but you got to survive it first. My, my big question is, are they going to be, are they going to be willing to take out somebody that matters? Because in doing that, when they're trying to make all the characters matter, I feel like they didn't focus enough on making a or a couple of characters matter. Maybe they tried, but that's not how it came off. It's not like you were saying, here's the lead of the show. Here's the adversary of the show. Who do you want to root for? Go. They don't do that. And that's something I think is kind of a critical piece. Obviously, you're rooting for everybody in the hole to get back. That's not what I'm saying. That's just basic that's just basic television watching 101, right? But you have to have a main focus. And at times it feels like they think they do, and then just when you think that they realize that they do, they pull back and they take you in another direction. So maybe that's unfair for me. Maybe they are 
focusing on it more than I real than I think they are. But you should always come out of a pilot episode of a show loving a character or two and or hating a character or two, depending on how how good the pilot is. And I feel like I'm just kind of middle ground with almost every character on this show. I can't think of one character that jumped out at me and went, man, that, that that's the one you got to watch right there. That's the character I'm tuning into the show for. And that's not a, you know, that that's not a knock on a great ensemble cast. It It's more of a, you you have to have that you have to have that star you have to have that star performance i should say and that's one of the things things going to keep people coming back great first episode ratings we'll have to see how the second one goes and see if people do come back i want labrea to be a hit i want it to have many many episodes and i want to explore this crazy world and rift between worlds and possible time travel i'm in for all that i love that stuff but I'm very concerned that they're going to spread themselves too thin, trying to develop every single character a little bit too soon. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the pilot for La Brea from NBC. Up next, how about we dive into the world of comics and what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is the writer Mark Russell, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast doesn't matter how you incorporate comics into your life, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And we dive into Deathstroke Incorporated. Number one this week, Joshua Williamson writing this one and his longtime partner in art, Howard Porter, joining him as well. Hi-Fi on the color, Steve Wands on the letters. And it's kind of how it sounds. We're going to go ahead and do some spoilers in this review where you do have Deathstroke. Teaming up with, and this is interesting, Black Canary. And they're actually trying to find a Hive Queen. Now, the interesting part about this is, as well, is they seem to be working for a new organization named Trust. So you've got Trust going after Hive. And yes, it's Trust, you know, the the T-R-U-S-T with the, you know, the periods in the end. So it, it stands for, it tells you what it stands for. I'm not going to read it for you. You can, you can check it out when you read the book. And the action is very, very good in this story throughout. And there's definitely a ton of it. And you might see a couple of other familiar faces, not like hugely familiar, but ones that you've probably seen from other books. So you've got the action that's really, really good. Again, we're talking about Slade and Hive, and there's certainly history there. So that makes sense. The the uneasy dynamic between Black Canary and Deathstroke, which is interesting because they, they absolutely touch on the fact of, you know, why is one working for the other? and why They're both asking each other why they're doing what they're doing. And you, you kind of get an answer to that. Is it clear-cut? No, not necessarily, but it at least makes sense in the story going forward, and they kind of also get what they want. But when when your organization is literally called Trust, it's hard in comics to wonder if you can, right? Because we've seen Spiral before, right? We've seen a bunch of other organizations that sort of pop up, and you think that they're good at first, and then it turns out they're not. Now... Everything's telling us that Trust is an organization that's trying to take down the worst. I mean, you see a bunch of villains at the end of the book. 
and you think to yourself, okay, so you, you've got Deathstroke in a team, and they're going to go after all these different villains. That should be fun. But then there's the very, very end of the book, and you're like, okay, what, what, what just happened? What did I just see? So this book can kind of make you th- think that you've got it figured out in one thing, and then it makes a little bit of a left turn. You're like, hold on a second. And so is this book about this or what? So that in in some cases that can be a good thing. In this case I don't know that it's a good thing. So you'll have to pick up Deathstroke Incorporated number 1 and see for yourself. Everything leading up to that final page is really really good and actually lays some good groundwork, but that final page is what gets me kind of scratching my head going, "Okay, so do we know what we're doing here or not?" And that is my big question for this. Now, I'd like to take you to something that's not going to be out until later this month, and that is Harbinger, The Harbinger, I should say, number one from Valiant. Been a while since we've done a Valiant comic story on the show. I had to change that this week. Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly doing the writing on this one. Robbie Rodriguez on the art. Rico Renzi on the colors and Hassan Osman Alau on the letters. Here's the deal. This one is a little deep. Okay, and you're used to seeing stuff like that from Lansing and Kelly from time to time. A lot of times they like to have a lot of fun. There's certainly no fun being had in this issue. So you do have Peter Stanchek. That is who this book centers around. If you're going to do a Harbinger book, you're going to relaunch things. You're going to kind of start from scratch with Harbinger. This is who you do it with. This is the character that you start with. And and what's interesting about this is what's going on with Peter in the first place. Like, is he Peter or is he not? And there's really not much of a description for this book from Valiant. Of course, it doesn't come out for a while, but we do know that Peter's memory is gone. And that is part of the description of the book. So that is not a spoiler. That's just part of the story. And it's one of the things that I kind of have to note in order to tell you this story. So what do you do with a telepath that doesn't have a memory of who he is and what he's capable of? We kind of get to see the what he's capable of part to a certain degree. And there is somebody that sort of fills in the gaps there as well. But what what you get is a very scared, very confused Peter pretty much throughout this first issue, and it kind of paints him in a different light than we're used to seeing him in, given the circumstances. You can understand why he'd be freaked out and scared and not really knowing what to do, when in reality, as powerful as he is, we're used to him just being able to handle these situations and, and move on with it, right? He was supposed to be the strongest of the of the Harbingers, of the Psyots, And he's just, right now, he's not. And he is trying to find his path forward. And it looks like he's kind of getting there. But at the same time, you know, imagine having a whole bunch of people coming after you and you have no reason, you have no idea why. And and why they don't like who you are, too, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. So you take that memory out and you lose all that understanding and all of that training and all of the things that he's been through to get him to this point mentally. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how those gaps get filled in, if they get filled in 
at all. But yeah, it does seem like these harbingers, these Syots, are always a freaking target in any Valiant story. And this one, again, a lot of very, very good depth and a, and a different angle on the story. The, the dialogue can be a little bit confusing at times because you don't always see the, the, the characters on the page. And are we talking about a, are, are we seeing something that occurred in the past and the dialogue is based in the future? Is it real time? I feel like sometimes, you know, that gets a little bit confusing as well, but it could just be, you know, the way I was reading it, which is very, very possible. I'm not sure it's a criticism either, by the way, because the art's really fantastic in this book. And the the story is really laser focused on Peter Stanchak, which is which is a good thing. And it allows itself to be expandable through this point, I think. So the Harbinger number one is one that I would definitely be adding to my poll box. Make sure you check it out later this month. That'll do it for what we're reading up next. We'll take you back to some of the biggest nerd news of the week. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is McKinley Belcher III from Fox's The Passage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're barely into the month of October, and we're already handing out chocolate. It's time for nerd news, and I'll be honest, it's been a light news week, so there's not really a whole lot to talk about, but this one kind of caught my eye. Apparently, Warner Brothers is going to be making another Willy Wonka movie. This time it is going to be a prequel simply called Wonka, and Timothy Chalmant is going to be taking the title role there. The movie is actually going to be a prequel of Willy Wonka basically before he became the chocolate master that we know and love. Now, the nuts and bolts of this thing is that it's going to be coming out on March 17th of 2023. Keegan-Michael Key is also in the cast. There's a couple of other, Roman Atkinson, was in the cast as well, and a couple of other notable names. But at the same time, okay. And I know that, you know, you're probably, if you grew up with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you're probably a huge fan. I get that. I loved the movie growing up too. The 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 other movie that they made, the the kind of reboot that they did, they did I think it was with Johnny Depp, eh, not so much. But this one, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I look at this and I say, do we really need this? Because to me, part of what I loved about Willy Wonka, the character, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was that eccentricity, was that, you know, mystery to a certain extent, right? Do I need to know how he acquired this fortune? If anything, you know, the the, the interesting thing is, you know, where the Oompa Loompas came from. Let's get that. Maybe we should have a Oompa Loompa origin story instead of a Willy Wonka one because I mean where you find the Oompa Loompas I have no idea so unless that's a part of this movie I I don't know really where I mean obviously there's places that you can go with this but is it interesting enough you know you've got the 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 many saints of Newark which is the prequel to the Sopranos that Warner Brothers is doing and that makes perfect sense finding out how Tony Soprano became Tony Soprano to me that makes sense that's a prequel that you make if you're going to make a prequel it has to have a reason not just a recognizable name. So while I'm slightly interested in this, I also have to look at this and I go, this is the classic example of why fans make fun of Hollywood saying, you know, everything gets a prequel now and, and everything gets rebooted and all these other things. It's stuff like this that makes you think that way. Now, could this turn out being awesome? Yeah, it sure could be because T- Timothy Chalmers supremely talented and could just kill this role. The script could be really, really good. 
and then all of a sudden I'm sitting here looking at, looking like an idiot saying that we don't need this because it's because it ends up being amazing. I just don't know though. I, I cannot be sure about this one, but I mean it's got to be a couple years before we even get a chance to see it. So let's let something get get off the ground first. And I'm always the guy I know. I say you know when should you at least wait until the first trailer before you criticize something. I'm not criticizing really. Not yet, because it's not criticism. It's just a kind of a roll my eyes of, you know, there there's so many stories you could make, and this one's the, and you decided to go back to this well again, and I'm not sure that you needed to do that. Here's something that I noticed as I'm combing through all these press releases and things from like the Netflix to dumb event that, that, that happened last weekend that was good, a couple of announcements that were made by Disney, and I realized that December it's going to be a really busy month, and it's not just because a jolly fat guy is going to be squeezing his butt down your chimney. No, no, no. There's going to be you're going to have to set aside some time while you're wrapping gifts or something in order to actually watch a ton of stuff. So put your holiday shopping on hold because your weekend's going to be pretty busy. I'm just going to list these for you really quickly. So in no particular order, by the way, you've got Spider-Man No Way Home on December the 17th. That's the same day, by the way, as The Witcher Season Two dropping. On Netflix, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, okay, I got time. Don't worry about that. All right, how about the Matrix Re- Matrix Resurrections? It's gonna be on December the 22nd, and then fast forward a little bit, you've got Book of Boba Fett now, which we find out it's gonna be hitting Disney Plus on December the 29th. So that's after Christmas. Maybe you think, okay, well, don't put your New Year's plans, don't set those just yet, because Cobra Kai season four debuts on Netflix on December. The 31st. So you look at that entire list, and I could be that guy that says, oh, which one are you looking forward to the most? First of all, that's subjective. Second of all, there there's obviously some big things here. You you think that Spider-Man No Way Home just jumps out as you jumps out at you as the odds-on favorite in the answer to that question, right? But then you remember how great that trailer was from the Matrix Resurrections and how just amazing. That franchise is, and then Book of Boba Fett might be one of the most anticipated spinoffs of the last year, maybe even the last two years, just because of how good Boba Fett worked into the last season of The Mandalorian, and then Cobra Kai is on such a hot streak right now, and that's one one of the more better-made revival series maybe ever. And then, and that's nothing to say that The Witcher you've been waiting forever. For season two of that. So you go ahead. You pick a favorite. Because I'm not gonna. There's too many good things here. And you're darn right. I'm going to try and set aside some time a little bit. Yeah, I got three kids in the house. We're going to find a way to put them to bed early. So daddy can actually watch this stuff. You know, mom was going to want to watch some of this stuff too. So yeah, it's it's going to be really difficult to find the time to watch all this stuff. And guess what? There's probably stuff I missed too. That's just the the, the big ones that really, really stood out to me when I was looking at things. So think about that for a second and how incredible of a month entertainment wise that December is going to be. I know that there's been a lot of talk about October and how this could be, you know, the telling box office month of the year. Right. And, and of, and since, you know, the whole COVID era began, you know, the October is going to be the telling month because there's so many big movies coming out. And this is going to show you what box office numbers are really going to look like now in the future, maybe ish. Right. So but no, to me, I think December is going to be the big, big month where the dollars either roll in or they don't. And some of the stuff that's TV based, like Book of Boba Fett and things like that, huge numbers, I think, going to be coming out of December. So, yeah, invite the family over 
and make sure you're watching some of this stuff because it's going to be an amazing, it's a, it is going to be the most wonderful time of the year for many, many reasons. I did want to talk about one trailer for a series that's coming to Peacock. You know, of course, we'll fast, we'll rewind back to October and we'll go to October the 21st, which is a Thursday. And The Girl in the Woods is actually going to drop on Peacock during that time. And I watched this trailer. It's kind of set in the Pacific Northwest. And it follows a girl named Carrie who escapes from a mysterious cult-like colony that guards the world from monsters hidden behind a secret door within the woods. And it's really interesting. To me, it's almost like a cross between Buffy and Chronicles of Narnia. And maybe I'm crazy in saying that, but there's a, a definitely creepy horror vibe to this show that I really, really dig. And it's kind of a younger cast, too, as well. So it's got, I don't want to say it's a young adult series. Maybe technically it is, but it doesn't give off that vibe at the same time. And how about this? Kristen Ritter. Yes, Jessica Jones herself is actually going to direct the first four episodes of this series. And all the episodes going to drop at once. All eight going to drop at the same time. So it's not going to be one of those week-to-week kind of things. Now, you might not necessarily recognize some of these names from the cast, like Stephanie Scott, who's in Carrie, Misha, and I'm, Misha, I'm sorry, I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name because it's 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 crazy and, and, and I don't want to butcher it, who is in Nolan, Sophia Bryant, who is in Tasha, and Will Yun Lee, who you'll recognize in the trailer from a bunch of great stuff. That That's just a few of the names of the cast. And then you see and some of the monsters that you see in this trailer are pretty legit and scary. And this is actually produced by Crypt TV, who had actually some short films back in 2018, started with The, the Door in the Woods, and then it was that was written directed by Joey Green, and then there was a sequel to that called The Girl in the Woods in 2020, another short film. So Crypt TV kind of behind this, and they sort of have reputation for creepy stuff like this. So I think that this looks really interesting, and, and somebody who's not like super into the horror genre myself, this is one that really, I think has a chance of being pretty darn good. So, yeah, The Girl in the Woods, October the 21st on Peacock. And, you know, hey, watch it. Give it a chance and let me know what you think. I'm definitely going to be circling back to this one at some point. That's going to do for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I want to thanks to thank Crystal Belint for talking to me about Midnight Mass, which is now streaming on Netflix. All of the episodes, make sure you're checking that out. Find out more about us as well at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also find us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.